Hey, welcome to Cornerstone Ministries Young Adult Podcast. We hope this serves as a resource for you as you seek, find, and grow in your walk with Jesus. Tune in for sermon audios from our young adult services and other original content. If you already have a home church, we're glad this can be another tool for you. But if not, we hope that you would check us out online at cornerstonelive.net or join us in person. Cornerstone is in Murraysville, PA, and services are Saturday at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9 and 11 a.m. Our young adult ministry gathers every other Tuesday at 7 p.m. We hope you are built up and spoken to through this message from Pastor Brandon. Alrighty, guys, excited to uh, jump into the Word together. Before we do, uh, just a quick reminder, guys, I'm just one of your, your pastors, and if you don't know this really awesome, cool-looking guy that was playing drums, this is our worship pastor, Pastor Trent. So if you haven't been on a Saturday or Sunday, I'm going you know, to interact with him. Make sure you say hey to him afterwards. Um, and uh, I think the, I'm, I'll, I get it now that I'm a father, but like the, the coolest thing he's done is fathered Emma and Nolan and Ava, because let's be honest, Emma's way better than, than he is. I'm just kidding. He's awesome. I love you guys. Um, but I'm excited that you guys are here. So make sure you guys say to him afterwards. Excited that you guys are here. We're going to jump back into our series, Understanding God's Will. Last week we really started to touch in on this fact that God's will for us is focused on our identity and our character first. And as he transforms our identity, as he transforms our character, our decisions follow after the fact. But where I I want us to go tonight is I I really want us to be able to wrestle with that question of, you know, we've all experienced difficult seasons and, and situations in our lives. And we look, sometimes we look at those things and, and kind of question, like, really, is this really a part of your plan for me, your will for me? Like, how does that fit? How does this heartache, how does this uh, broken situation, how does that fit in to, to your will for me? So we're going to try and remedy that uh, tonight. But let's go ahead and pray together, and then we'll dive into the Word. Father, I praise you. I thank you so much for the fact that we get to come together. We get to spend time uh, diving into your word, I ask that as we seek you, that you would help us to see you and your truth, that that wouldn't be blurred by me or my opinion, uh, but God, as we try and understand who you are, understand your will for us, would you just make that clear? Open up our eyes, open up our hearts to what you have for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said last week, we, we entered into this idea of, of will, and just to kind of remind you guys, kind of give you that background again, that Greek word for will, uh, which is thalo, it means to have a mind or to intend, but here's what I like about this, it kind of brings d- deeper meaning to this concept of God's will, to desire, to wish, to do it, and to be fond of doing, to take delight in, to have pleasure in. So when you start to ask the question, God, What is your will for me? Looking at this definition actually changes that perspective a little bit to say, hey, God, what do you desire for me? What do you take delight in? What do you have pleasure in as far as what you would have for my life? So this brings a new depth, a new meaning to that concept of will. Now, guys, when I was thinking about that question of how does this all, how how does the junk fit into your plan for me, your will for me? And guys, let's, let's not lie to each other here. Some of us have walked through some very difficult things. And I'm saying that based on assumption, but just based on the people in this room, I can't imagine some of the difficulties and pains that we've had to walk through. 
But you might be looking at particular sins and say, really, God, how, how could you have uh, this addiction? Uh, how is that a part of your plan for me? How is this abuse a part of your plan for me? How is this loved one dying? How is that supposed to be a part of your will for my life? And we struggle to remedy those things. We struggle to, to bring those things together and realize, okay, God wants to take all of that, the, the good, the bad, the ugly, and all of that he's going to use in some way in my life, but how is that really possible? And really processing that question, I actually was wrestling with this passage uh, when my wife and I, when we were looking to, to leave our previous church. And some of the experiences that we had and, and some of the things we were looking for for our family, and we started to kind of ask those questions of God, what is this all look like? What do you have for us? How are you taking all these experiences, the good and the bad? How are you using those things to shape us and kind of get us to the next part of our journey? And that's kind of what I want to dig into tonight. But I feel like after 2020, the phrase hindsight is 2020, like it needs to change. I don't know what it needs to change to because like 2021 wasn't much better. And like, I get it. Like it's, it's based on 2020 vision. But I feel like hindsight 2020 just kind of is like a, like a cringy phrase now. But, but hindsight, I want you to think about this, is hindsight literally means understanding of a situation or event only after it has happened or developed. And even just in that definition, I want you to think about this, is you may have walked through something. You may have experienced some form of abuse or walked through an addiction or a sin that kind of really crippled you for a while. Or a relationship that has damaged your perspective on how relationships are actually supposed to function. And you look at that and you go, okay, I understand what has happened, but how is that supposed to develop me? How is that supposed to move me forward? Like, I don't know what I'm supposed to learn through being sexually assaulted. I don't know what I'm supposed to learn through thinking about killing myself for, you know, these three years of my life. I don't know how I'm supposed to develop through having a, an addiction to pornography that cripples my understanding of the opposite sex. Like, how do we remedy those concepts together? But I want to look at a couple passages together. First, I want us to jump into Luke 24 and, and talk about um, the road to Emmaus. And there's an interaction between a couple of, you know, they're just listed as disciples, so to speak, followers of Jesus, not one of the 12, but just intimate followers of Jesus in Luke 24, starting in verse 13. And I'll look at the beginning of this, give a little bit of a summary here, and we're actually going to circle back to it. But verse 13 says, that very day, two of them, two followers of Jesus, people who were kind of in that inner circle, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. They had just experienced, you know, witnessed uh, the, the arrest, the beating, the, the crucifixion of Jesus. But who are these two? That it's referring to. Most scholars uh, land on the fact that this is most likely Clopas or Cleopas. It, there's a couple different spellings of it. But Clopas or Cleopas was Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, the, the stepdad of Jesus. But Clopas or Cleopas was Joseph's brother. And based on Jewish culture, after Joseph's passing, basically Jesus' foster father. Okay, based on Jewish culture, when a man died, if he had wife and children, it would become his brother's responsibility to care for them. So most likely Cleopas is very close with Jesus, very close with his entire family. And it describes in John how with Mary at the cross was Mary's sister, 
the wife of Clovis, who was also married. So most likely, these two people on the road to Emmaus were Clovis or Cleopas and his wife, Mary. So Jesus's aunt and foster father, basically, are the relationships there. So you have two intimate relationships with Jesus. They're traveling back to their hometown. And as they're walking, verse 15, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And when so, and so this is an interesting passage to me, but I also think it's kind of funny. I mean, as you're, I, I wish we got the, the in between the lines sometimes. Because if you just read that passage for what it's worth, you can picture this husband and wife walking, and almost in this incredibly creepy way, Jesus just like slides into the conversation like, like, I, in my mind, this is Old Testament, like, sliding into someone's DMs, like, just very awkwardly, like, mm, why would you do that? Most likely, there was, like, a greeting, like, hey, how are you? What's going on? Like, it wasn't some awkward, but the way it's worded in the text, it's like, man, there's just no intro. He just, just really sneakily snuck his way into this couple's stroll as they're heading home. But they start talking about everything that they experienced. Everything that was going on in Jerusalem. And Jesus is kind of playing dumb. He's like, what are you, what are you talking about? What, you know, what, what is all this? Who's, who's Jesus of Nazareth? What are you going on about? And they start to, they kind of gripe with him a little bit. Clovis and Mary start to gripe with them not knowing it's Jesus, but they start to gripe with Jesus, saying, where have you been? Have you not heard of everything that's been going on? Everything that you've been hearing about seeing? Were you not in Jerusalem you know, these past few days? Because this guy that was crucified, Jesus, we thought he was the Messiah. We thought he was the one that was going to redeem Israel. And that just wasn't the case. Okay, so that kind of sets us up a little bit. I need you to pause on that. And I want to jump over to Romans 8. Don't worry, we are going to come back to that passage and kind of bring it to a close. But I need you to, to, to hold with me here this concept of hindsight. Because... Clopas and Mary, they were looking at this conversation, this situation. They had no clue what was going on. They were very confused, like, how do you not understand? Do you not see the, the connection here? And like I said, we're going to revisit that passage, but I really want us to spend a majority of our time on one verse in Romans 8. And one verse in Romans 8, but we've got we to put it in context here. So we're going to look at a, a chunk of passages here in Romans 8, starting in verse 18. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So, guys, a little bit of background. Paul is writing to the church in Rome, and the context of this is that Emperor Claudius had sent all of the Jews out of Rome for five years. And that included Jewish-believing, or, or Jesus-believing Jews. So for five years, Gentile Christians, non-Jewish Christians, are running the church. And the, the context of that, the implications of that, because there were so many cultural differences, when the Jews were allowed to return home, the, the, the Jewish Christians came back to a church they did not recognize. 
And this sparks this controversy between Jewish believers and non-Jewish believers about tradition and like, okay, well, this is how worship should be. And this is what we should be having for dinner. And this is what we should be wearing. And all of these little nitpicky arguments around what the church should look like. So Paul writes Romans to try and break down some of these barriers. So in this chunk of scripture, put that in context. He's saying, listen, I don't care whether you're Jewish or Gentile. I don't care what color you are. I don't care what gender you are. I don't care how old you are. All of creation is groaning and longingly waiting for the return of Jesus. That levels the playing field. Your culture, your traditions, your backgrounds, they are irrelevant as we await the return of Jesus. Okay, so let's pick it up, verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions of sons, the redemption of our bodies. I, I never really struggled with the concept, like the way that this passage words the longing and the groaning. It's not really awkward until it gets to the groanings of childbirth. Like that makes it really weird. The only funny story I have from uh, my wife, Lexi, having our kids is this is with Ellie. And as she's in labor, I'm trying to like cheer her on and encourage her. I'm like, Lex, you're doing so good. You're doing so good. You're doing so good. You're doing like, keep going. You're doing good. And this is the only time I've seen any even iota of rage from her. But like mid-labor, I'm like, you got it, babe. You're doing so good. And this, in her defense, I said good like 57 times at this point. And she's just mid-labor, just pick a new word. I'm like... <laughs> Hey, and then I was like, babe, you're doing awesome. <laughs> She's like, thank you. Um, like there was like, I, so I understand the groanings of childbirth is like exercising a demon and like the miracle of life at the same time. Um, so this passage took on new meaning for me after having a child. Uh, I didn't have a child, my wife had a child. I'm gonna move on, you know what I mean. Um, I'm gonna get myself in trouble. But anyways, this, so this concept of, of just groaning in anguish and pain, but yet knowing that through that anguish, through that pain, there's something beautiful that is coming. Okay, so verse 24. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For, we, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Beautiful verse. That's a whole sermon series in and of itself, but just quick side note here. The fact that in moments where you have no clue what to pray, you are so just out of, just bent out of shape with anxiety or fear or stress, depression, the Holy Spirit is literally stepping in on your behalf saying, I got you. A beautiful passage of scripture, verse 27. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Verse 28, this is the only verse I really want us to dig into. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now guys, as we start to dig in here, I, I need to explain something to you. One of my professors in college, he worded it like this. There's two ways to study the Bible. You can jet ski or you can scuba dive. Jet skiing is a lot of fun. I've been jet skiing. I have not been snorkeling. I'm a little bitter about it. Um, or I have not been scuba diving. I've been snorkeling. That's not my words now. But uh, 
when you're jet skiing, it's a lot of fun. You can see a lot of things, but you're also, you're moving past beauty very quickly. Whereas scuba diving, you're obviously, you're not really covering a lot of ground, but you can experience the same amount of beauty and just awe that you would jet skiing, but in very different ways. And if you only read the Bible one way, you're missing it. So there are days where you got to jet ski. You got to just you got to just fly through three or four or five, you know, or more chapters of the Bible to kind of get the big picture. But then you got to go back and you got to scoot up. You got to dive in at one spot and you got to kind of search all the cracks and crevices of God's word to see all the beauty that's hidden inside. So you have to find a balance in how you study the word of God. But verse 28, I want to scoot out on that verse. We just read 18 through 28 to give it context. Now I want to scoot out on 28. And I want us to kind of rip this apart. Let's look at this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We're going to kind of work backwards here. And I want to, I want to break this down. Because when you look at this passage for what it's worth, now guys, hang with me. We are not rewriting, redefining scripture. But we're digging into why is this worded the way it is? And what do these words actually mean when we look at them in the original language? And it's actually going to change our understanding of what God is trying to communicate us to us here. Because here's what we got. When you look at 18 through 28, creation is groaning. It's an anguish waiting for God to return. But in the meantime, if you love him, life's going to be sunshines and rainbows. That doesn't make any sense. And this verse kind of falls apart if you don't scoop it up on it, if you don't dig into it. So I just want to start on this word purpose. And that word purpose, the Greek word prothesis, here's what's so interesting about this. The definition of that is a setting forth of a thing, placing, uh, placing of it in view. But the primary definition of prothesis is purpose. It is defined as purpose most of the time. But the other definition of prothesis is the showbread, or the bread of presence. And that Greek word prothesis, it's used in Hebrews 4, but in Exodus 25, we get this explanation of what the showbread is, as God is giving instruction on the temple, the tabernacle, how it's supposed to be laid out. And it says, and you shall set the bread of presence, the prothesis, you shall set the showbread on the table before me regularly. And these were these 12 loaves of matzah that would be placed out every single week. And they would be placed before the Lord. They would not be eaten, but they were placed there to acknowledge the reality of God's provision for the nation of Israel. So when you actually look into the, the Greek of purpose and seeing that there's this connection to God's provision, what we start to see and what we can start to kind of pull out of the text, actually out of the text, is that when it says, according to his purpose, that from the Old Testament to now, his purpose has remained the same. The acknowledgement of his presence, his glory, and his renown. His name going forth into all of creation. So, let's look at this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. What is his purpose? His glory. His acknowledgement of his provision. His acknowledgement of grace and love. His name becoming renowned throughout all of creation. Okay, so God works all things together for his purpose or for your good. Those, are called, those called according to his purpose. Not for your pleasure, for his purpose. Okay, now let's back it up a little bit more. 
Alright? First Peter 2, verses uh, 9 through 12, kind of sheds some light on this topic, but I really want to highlight 1 Peter 2, 12. It says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds, and it doesn't say acknowledge you, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So the purpose of your good deeds is his glory, his renown, his acknowledgement. Okay, just giving a little bit of context here, but let's back up a little bit. He works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So we're going to back it up a little more to that word good. And that word good, Greek word agathos, here's what's so interesting about this. Of good constitution or nature, useful, excellent, distinguished, upright, and honorable. And guys, when you look up the, the definition of that Greek word agathos, it kind of gives tiers of its definition, like what's the primary definition, secondary, third. The concept of pleasure doesn't show up until the fourth tier. So that Greek word agathos for good, the concept of pleasure, is not the primary definition of that word. But what is distinguished, what is upright, what is honorable? It is holy. It is holy. I'm sorry, guys, that's supposed to be 1 Peter 1 up on the slide. 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16 dives into this, but kind of a, a summation there. Peter lands on the ground and be holy as he is holy. Be holy for I am holy. So now you look at Romans 8, 28. Like I said, we're not rewriting it, but we're understanding what the words mean. And we know that for those who love God, he works all things together for good or for what? For your holiness. He works all things together for your holiness for those who are called according to his purpose, his renown, his glory, his acknowledgement. Now, I had this professor, I had this professor in college, different professor than the one that talked about jet skiing and scuba diving, but he like invented the class on how to study the Bible at Liberty University. And his name was Dr. Paul Fink, and guys, I'll be honest, this guy scared me. Not because he was intimidating, like, we were all scared for him. As in, like, we were worried he was going to die in the middle of class. That's, that's how old he was. Like, there were multiple times in the middle of class, and when I say middle of class, I mean, like, two minutes into his lecture, he leans back on, the, on like, the wall, and he's like, whew, guys, I'm getting a little lightheaded. <laughs> like, we're genuinely terrified the majority of the semester that he's not going to make it. Um, and he just an icon at Liberty Assembly. He did pass away uh, a few years after I took his class. Um, but he had all these little sayings, and he, and he joked about it, you know, and all the students joked about think one one and think one two. Um, the, you know, his phrases he coined, but one of them was all. Because when he would assign papers and we'd ask questions, you know, what do we have to write about? What all, you know, what do we have to cover? And he said, well, look at the instructions. What did it say? And it says, okay, you have to uh, give a commentary on all of John chapter 3. I'm like, but Dr. Fink, what do you mean by all? Every single time anybody asks a question about the word all, all means all, and that's all all means. All means all, and that's all it means. So all things work together, everything, the good, the bad, the ugly, the abuse you experienced, the assault you experienced, the loved one you lost, the sin you walked through, the addiction you had to struggle through, every single thing now, let me be clear here. We are not saying, and this verse is not saying, that God has brought these things upon you, but he will use all of them to make you holy for the purpose of his glory. 
He will use all of them to make you holy for the purpose of his glory. Ephesians 5, verses 20 through 5 through 27. We're not digging into this because we're talking about marriage now. We're not changing course. But I want us to, to look at this for a second. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Guys, the reason that, that the Lord holds marriage in such high regard is because of the, the very real image it presents to the world of relationship between Jesus and the church. Okay? But I want you to look at this. Jesus' goal is to sanctify us, to make us holy, to present us without spot or blemish, with the washing of the word. So he desires to take all things, all, things, all means all, that's all means. He wants to take all things, the good, the bad, the ugly, every difficulty, trial that we have faced, not that he has placed them there. Sin naturally brings evil into our life, but in a way that only God can, he takes the terrible things we can't possibly imagine, and he uses them for our holiness. So when we step back and we say, God, there's no possible way that you could take the fact that I was raped and use it to make me holy. There's no possible way you can take the fact that I had the awkward, just dis made me want to throw up, disgusting encounter of being caught masturbating by my parents. There's no way you can take something like that and use it for my homes. There's absolutely no way you can take the, the fact that my, my parent passed away or I lost a sibling. How can you use those things to make me more holy? Now, what's interesting about it, when it says all things work together, that phrase work together, the Greek word for that is one word. And I apologize, I didn't write that one down. Totally just went out the back of my mind. But the definition of it is given power. So the Lord takes all things, the good, the bad, the ugly, and he gives it power to make you holy so that you give him glory. So when you look at this verse and you go, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Well, that is making sense because I didn't enjoy any of this. So why is this a part of your plan for me? How is, the, how is this in your will for me? How is me walking through this in your plan for me? And I'm not going to lie to you guys. There are seasons and, and times where the Lord says, no, no, that was never in my plan for you. But in a way that only I can, I'm going to use it in such a way that it adds power to my plan for you. But the hinge of this, the part that kind of crumbles this verse, is the very beginning. And we know that for those who love God, that Greek word agape is sacrificial, intentional love. Kind of our, our benchmark for that, Romans 5, 6 through 11, but verse 8 specifically. But God shows his love, his agape for us, his love for us, and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. If you cannot sacrificially love God, then he is not going to be able to take those difficult things in your life and empower them for your holiness. 
Because here's why. Instead of being focused on the glory of God, if you are not sacrificially loving God, you're not focused on the glory of God, then your mindset's focused on what? It's not on his glory, it's on your pleasure. And guys, this is, here, this is kind of a gut punch here, but you have to kind of do a self-assessment and ask the question, am I truly following Jesus, sacrificially laying down my life before Jesus? It says in this word that you should present your bodies as a living sacrifice before the Lord. This is your spiritual worship. But the King James says, this is your reasonable service. It is your reasonable service. This isn't extravagant. This isn't overtop. It is reasonable. It is the minimum that in response to his sacrifice for you, you sacrifice your life before him. And if that is not your mindset, then are you following Jesus or have you fallen into moralistic, theistic hedonism? Which I would say is the majority of people in our churches. You're moralistic, you want to be a good person. You're theistic, you, yeah, I'm for God, sure. But at the end of the day, you're primarily a hedonist. The worldview that is motivated by seeking your own pleasure. So I want to be a good person, I believe in God, but ultimately the source of my motivation is my pleasure. If that's your driving force, then this verse doesn't work for you. Because then you get stuck in the, how could God take this and use it for my holiness? But when you sacrificially lay your life before the Lord, not that he has placed these experiences in your life, but if you have walked through sin, you have walked through heartache and hurt, you say, God, how in the world is, is me being broken in this relationship supposed to be a part of your plan for me, your will for me? He says, it wasn't. But if you sacrifice your life before me, if you lay down your life to me, then I'm going to use that to bring an insane amount of patience into your character. And I'm going to use that for my glory. God, how in the world are you calling me to forgive my abuser? How is that supposed to be a part of your will for me, your plan for me? Well, if you're not sacrificially loving Jesus, if you're in that moralistic, theistic, hedonist camp, then no, he's not going to be able to. But if you sacrificially lay your life before Jesus and say, it might not be easy, it might take years to do it, but God says, I'm going to use that to give you a divine, insanely inspired, just incredible influx of forgiveness into your character in a way that only I can. And I'm going to use all the crap, I'm going to use all the hurt, I'm going to use all the junk to make you holy so you push people to me. Because ultimately, I want to use all things to make you holy because I called you to make my name known. So now I want to go back to the road to Emmaus and let's finish this out. Emmaus was seven miles from Jerusalem. It says that at the beginning of in Luke 24, verse 13. That's seven miles away. The average human being walks two and a half to, to four miles an hour. So you're looking at a two, three hour journey. That Cleopas and his wife Mary, that's who these scholars are saying these two people are, are walking with Jesus and they're talking through it. And Jesus starts laying out the entire history of the Old Testament. He starts revealing his presence throughout the entire of the Old Testament. And on this two, three hour walk, they still, they're not recognizing a thing. They're not recognizing a thing. Well, let's look at this again. Luke 24, starting in verse 30. They get to their village. Cleopas and Mary, they say, hey, it's late. You know, stay with us. Come, come in for dinner. 
Verse 30, when he was at the table with them, this is Jesus, he took the bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. Verse 31, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their side. Look at their response. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened us the scriptures? And they rose the same hour and returned to Jerusalem. So they got up from their meal, and they went the two, three hours back. It probably took them an hour, because they were probably booking it at this point. 45 minutes. They arose the same hour, returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. See, some of you are on that journey right now with Jesus, and you're not seeing the, the culmination of the story. Jesus is revealing to them this two, two three-hour journey. He's saying, look, all of this stuff, you see how I'm in it? You see how I'm in it? You see how I'm in it? And they still didn't get it. But they got to dinner, and now the hindsight kicked in. Enough had, had been developed and if you're wrestling through something, a sin, a, a struggle, a temptation, a, a difficult season, a loss, and you're thinking, Lord, how is this supposed to be a part of your will for me? I'm trying to understand your plan. I'm trying to understand your desires for me. I know you want what's best for me. But how are you going to use this, something that has caused me so much pain, so much heartache, so much difficulty? How is this supposed to be a part of your plan for me? And what I would say to you is very simple. Wait for dinner. You're still on the road. He hasn't opened your eyes to it yet. I don't know how long that journey is for you to make it to the dinner table. It could be a week. It could be a month. It could be years. But once you make it to them, once you get to that place where the Lord opens your eyes, listen now it says this, verse 31, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And they vanished, and he vanished. And look at their response. They immediately got up and booked it to tell everybody what had happened. So the stuff that you're looking at and go, how can this possibly be a part of your plan for me? The reason you may still not be able to see it is because you're still on the road. You haven't made it to dinner yet. But the moment he reveals his plan for you, how he wants to stir up forgiveness in you, how he wants to stir up grace in you, how he wants to stir up love in you, Mercy in you. I promise you that once your eyes are open to that, your immediate response is going to, to alter your entire trajectory. That's what I love about their, their reaction in that moment. That hindsight of, oh, I get it. I see it now. And it's almost frustrating, but you know what's interesting to me? Is we, each and, every one of, each and every one of us can probably think of a situation or season in our life where we, we have the hindsight, right? Those moments where you, you, you think back and you go, in the moment, I didn't get it, but I, but I get it now. And we could probably list them out. The amount of times God has done something like that. And yet every single time we find ourselves in that exact same spot on the road, or go, I don't get it, we immediately default to doubt that we're never going to get it. We're never going to understand it. 
I said, really? I, I've seen the Lord reveal himself to me again and again and again. I've seen how he used this and this and this and this. So, God, how do you want to use this in me? So for me personally, I did not understand why in the world would I have to wrestle with being a, an outcast and craving and desiring acceptance, bringing me to a place of depression and suicidal thoughts and addiction and pornography. How is that all a part of my plan? Being physically abused by my older brother. Why is this all supposed to be used? How is it supposed to be used? How is it supposed to fit? And now that I've gotten to a place where I feel like I've, I've gotten to dinner, so to speak, time and time again, it's counseling session with this, this guy struggling with pornography. Counseling session with my wife and I sit down with this, this young woman who was raped which was a first for us this past year. As far as sitting down with somebody struggling with that. I'm walking through that with her. Sitting down with people who haven't spoken to a sibling in years because there's so much hostility in their relationship. But how is, how is me wanting to end my life? How is that supposed to be a part of your plan for me? And yet now seeing the amount of people I've been able to have a conversation with who have been in, who are in that same spot or been in that same spot. So do I look at those seasons of my life with joy? No. Do I look at those seasons of my life and go, God, why'd you do this to me? Why'd you allow this to happen? No. But now I look at them and go, I get it. I didn't like it. I didn't enjoy it. But praise God you're using it. But the only reason he's using it is because I'm allowing him to. So if you're in the middle of that season, my prayer for you is that you would have the patience and the endurance to finish that journey home and make it to dinner. And you get to a place where your eyes are open, he reveals to you how he's going to use this. But let's pray together, and we're going to close with one more song of worship. Father, I praise you. I thank you so much for the fact that you do have a plan for us. You do have a will for us. You have desire for us. And within that will, within that plan, you take great pleasure in it. Because you know all the good that's going to come from it. But God, I ask that you would help, help us have a clear understanding of Romans 8. That your goal is not our pleasure but that we would be made holy and that we'd be able to fulfill the purpose you have for us in making your name known. Now the beauty of that is in the abundance of your grace, as you make us holy, joy becomes a byproduct. As you make us holy, the enjoyment of life becomes a byproduct. In the same way, your will for us focuses on our character and our identity first, and then you transform our decisions. Your will for us focuses on our holiness first, and that brings us great joy and great pleasure as we submit into that greater plan. But if we're in the middle of that journey where we don't have the hindsight yet, we haven't seen how, we haven't been able to see how this is going to develop, how it's going to unfold, we're still on the road to Emmaus. We're still on the journey yet. Our eyes have not been opened. We beg you for patience, for steadfastness, for endurance to just make it to the dinner table.
So we thank you for the time your word, the time we've had together. And we praise things in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this message. For more information for the Young Adult Ministry, follow us on Instagram or you can email youngadults at cornerstonelive.net.